The Energy Gang is brought to you by GE. GE has a new energy storage system. It is called Reservoir. It's a modular lithium-ion battery that can cut construction time by 50%. The product itself is new, but it's the result of decades of innovation in software, power electronics, and systems design from the teams at GE. Find out more about GE's Reservoir battery storage system and what it can do for your project or your grid at ge.com slash energy storage. That's ge.com slash energy storage. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, the wildfire crisis in California. Hundreds of thousands of acres were scorched, thousands of homes were razed, hundreds are still missing, and a major utility is on the verge of bankruptcy. We'll discuss the most destructive wildfire in California history, what happens if it was caused by utility equipment. Then we'll mark the Thanksgiving week in the second half of the show. We'll each share our picks for the top turkey of 2018, who made the biggest blunders of the year. With me around our virtual dinner table is Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. They are my regular co-hosts. Catherine's the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's in Washington, D.C. Catherine, what are you giving thanks for this week? Uh, well, if I'm going to be silly, I'm giving thanks that I only have to eat tofurkey once a year. But I'm really thankful for my husband for allowing me to do what I do every day and for being a partner in raising our kids to be like good adults. So why tofurkey? Why don't you eat something else that's not so cardboardy? Well, I do eat a lot of the sides, uh, but a lot of the, some of the sides have meat stuff in them, so I have to avoid them. So I just go for it. I go for the full tofurkey. Mm. Jigger, what are you digging into? Are you eating tofurkey? You're a vegetarian as well. Well, I'm very thankful that my wife puts together a whole bunch of. Uh, um, you know, different sides and different things. This is like her her day of the year. She loves it. She like spends like a month looking at all the different recipes and all the different things that are happening, et cetera. So I think we mostly just eat a whole bunch of sides. Like there's not a featured entree. Stephen, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for this house that I have around me that's safe, you know, just a few miles north of us in uh, North Andover, Mass. A lot of people were displaced about a month ago or two months ago because of that big gas explosion. And a lot of people lost their houses. They haven't been able to come back. And so they're spending Thanksgiving week in hotel rooms. And when they do come back, the gas company has ripped out all their appliances and not replaced them. And there's all these questions about who's going to pay. So as you know, thousands and thousands of people in California are out of their homes and and hundreds of people here in Massachusetts, not too far away from my neighborhood, are out of their homes. I'm thankful that I'm in here nice and safe and sound. I also, you know, want to give thanks to our listeners, too. So you've heard me mention this in previous shows. We're uh, giving thanks to you for the remainder of the year. And if you use the promo code PODCAST, to either buy a membership to GTM Squared, our premium service, or sign up for our storage summit in December, you will get deep discounts. You'll get 50 bucks off your Squared membership, and you'll get 20% off uh, your pass to Storage Summit. So just go to gtmsquared.com or greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code podcast. 
So let's begin in California, where by now you've likely heard the president's prescription for managing wildfires. You've got to take care of the floors, you know, the floors of the forests, very important. You look at other countries where they do it differently, and, and it's a whole different story. I was with the president of Finland, and he said, we have uh, a much different, we're a forest nation. He called it a forest nation. And they spend a lot of time on raking and cleaning and doing things, and they don't have any problem. And when it is, it's a very small problem. So uh, I know everybody's looking at that. California has seen 1.4 million acres of forest burned this year. 5.4 percent of the state's land has burned in the last five years. The Northern California wildfire known as Campfire scorched 150,000 acres, but much worse, it killed nearly 80 people, uh, destroyed thousands of homes, an entire town, and hundreds of people are still unaccounted for. The Woolsey Fire in Southern California burned another 100,000 acres around Malibu, displacing thousands of people. At one point, the Bay Area in California had some of the worst air pollution in the world due to the smoke and ash. In fact, some East Coast cities were hazy this week as the smoke blew across the country. That just shows you how much pollution was in the air. So some big questions are emerging from these fires, particularly in Northern California. One, who is to blame? PG&E says a transmission line malfunctioned near where the large campfire started. Now they're facing an investigation, a class action lawsuit, and flirting with bankruptcy. Stepping further back, how much can we blame this on climate change? Low rainfall and hotter temperatures certainly played a major factor. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is blaming environmentalists and the state of California for forest management practices, even though the fire actually moved through mostly federal lands. So what are the most important contributing factors? And finally, how do you protect a vulnerable electric grid as these fires get worse and worse? This is a regular problem in California and in other regions now. So once again, resiliency is top of mind. Catherine, what do we know about how this fire started and what the impact is? Yeah, we definitely know there were some issues with PG&E's equipment. Remember, in 2017, 17 out of the 21 fires were caused by electrical equipment. So it really points very strongly to, and I think PG&E has been pretty open about the fact that it might have to do with equipment. Um, And part of that is because of certainly vegetation management, but also sagging lines, you know, lines that have not been kept up the way they maintain the way they should. And you need a heat source, fuel and oxygen for a fire. And that all comes together with some of this power equipment. So, you know, PG&E has for 2017, um, some path forward for Uh, dealing with these fires. There was SB 901 that was signed into law that will come into effect in January 2019, which allows customers to pay over time through bonds um, for some of this mitigation through PG&E. But but this doesn't even deal with 2018. So this is a whole another thing we have to look at is they need to figure out where exactly the fires came from. And remember in Southern California, SC&E, so Cal-Ed lines may be at fault for the Woolsey fire, which is also still burning. So how do you prevent this, right? I mean, you've got all this equipment that could cause problems sitting in the middle of a tinderbox in California. Uh, these utilities are in real trouble long term. One word, Stephen microgrids. 
That's a good word. But so there are two things at issue. One is that, and I used to design grids and do circuit conversions and you would have to, you know, some of my projects were upgrading from like a 2KV line to a 20KV line. And when you do that, there's some pretty serious differences in clearance because of the voltage of the line from trees. So you had to, you know, figure out how to put the line where it wasn't going to bump trees or where you're going to have to cut trees down and, and manage the vegetation. So that is one piece of it is simply making sure that you have clearance no matter where your lines are. But the other issue that's really much harder is the fact that they had these high winds, that they haven't got the rains that they've needed. They didn't have the fall rainy season they expected, which is also a windy season. So that just, that doubles the issue of, you know, now you've got wind and dry dryness and you know potentially some clearance issues so i think that is compounding the problem for P- pg&e and other utilities and how much should these utilities be held responsible we just went through a political compromise earlier this fall uh protecting pg&e and other utilities from wildfire damages uh, last year, or at least allowing them to spread the cost of dealing with those wildfire damages to ratepayers. Um, CPUC President Michael Picker has said that he does not want PG&E to go bankrupt and that regulators and policymakers will you know, seek to find a solution to make sure that PG&E can spread additional costs associated with the campfire. But meanwhile, we are seeing a class action lawsuit form and people are you know, pointing their fingers directly at PG&E saying, you are at fault. So how much uh, is a utility like PG&E at fault? I guess we can't really say because we don't know exactly the cause of the fire, but signs point toward a transmission line causing the fire. Um, Jigger, any any thoughts on sort of how liable they are? PG&E was found to have wanted to shut down the power in this area because there were 52 mile an hour gust windstorms and and uh, those are the conditions under which they have realized that fires might start. And so they decided to shut it down. Then they decided, oh, we don't want to inconvenience the customer. So we didn't shut it down. And these are all human decisions, which I get, right? But it all stems from the fact that the utility companies have not really gotten into the 21st century. And even when they have, they've gone kicking and screaming, right? The amount of cost required to put in sensors to really understand what the conditions are to have a supercomputer calculate like well what's the probability of a wildfire being started given these conditions is actually really small it's far smaller than the liability that PG&E continues to have for blowing up San Bruno for having issues in San Francisco like it's one thing if PG&E like did this and there was like one time right in its 75 year history that it happened but it happens every other year with PG&E, right? It's not just a one-time thing. PG&E refuses to figure out a way to get into the 21st century. Even today, for instance, PG&E still cannot integrate DER information or distributed generation information into its grid operation system. It seems to me like we're conflating a lot of things there. I mean, I want to separate transmission line management from data around distributed resources and you know dis- distribution grid modernization um what if they had invested all that like i i feel like the 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 probability that you know some kind of fault happens and quickly sparks a wildfire is still fairly high you know even if they invest billions of dollars into upgrading the system 
you've you just have a certain level of risk associated with line issues and California is a, a disaster waiting to happen. I totally agree, right? But the trust level with PG&E is at an all-time low. Catherine, what could utilities in California do to protect those lines? Like, what? where do they go from here in terms of hardening the system so that they can lower the risk of wildfire damages? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question for PG&E because, remember, they've also been cutting service in fear of this happening and to they didn't tens of thousands of people. No, they didn't. They took a decision. So, I mean, I think Jigger is onto something where we need to make sure that not only do we have sensors to understand what's going on and be- much better vegetation management, but we also need to be able to fail quickly and recover quickly, really put in more resilient technologies. And I think microgrids might be a good way to go for them because in some of these areas, they really are just a fire waiting to happen. When you look at um, University of California, MRSA did model the risk of of fire, increased fire uh, in the California climate assessment. And they say by 2100, there will be an increase by 77% of area burned by fire. And insurance costs will go up 20%, close to 20%, just by 2055. So it's not going away. Just the trends there are such that, you know, it's not even just, you know, raking, which is what certainly the president said. (laughs) It's not just about forest floor management because pine trees, evergreens also serve as fuel. That is, it's not just you know, dead branches on the ground and leaves. It's really about everything and about managing the entire system. Well, this is where it gets kind of complicated, right? So you can point to a fault on a PG&E transmission line and determine whether or not the company was at fault for that problem or they didn't do enough in time to respond to the equipment failure. So that that seems like fairly clear to me as investigators search for the cause of the fire. But if we're holding, you know, trying to hold oil companies responsible for generational damage, then it feels to me like this is a much more complicated problem because California's climate risk has shot up and made these wildfires much more likely. I mean, California's vegetation dryness exceeded the 99th percentile for any single day as far back as they've been keeping records. Uh, uh, Eric Holthouse over at Grist writes that the air was so dry it was sucking water out of the land. Uh, A National Geographic analysis shows that the state's hottest and driest summers all happened in the last 20 years. 15 of the 20 largest wildfires in California history happened since 2000s. Uh, and and these are all climate-related impacts as scientists are better able to statistically analyze um, the likelihood of these events. So, you know, if we're, if we're blaming oil companies for climate problems, it feels to me like there's a lot more blame to go around here, both in terms of climate risks and forest management, not just the utility company for sparking the wildfire. Does that make sense to you? Like, it, seems, it just seems so fraught. It does. But the thing that you have to understand is that this entire construct is human made, right? The PG&E has a monopoly license from the state to provide electricity in a safe and stable manner, right? And when they violate that particular monopoly clause, then everything is on the table, right? It's the same as when you talk about the oil companies. The reason BP got 
excoriated for the the leak in the Gulf of Mexico is because just three years earlier, they killed a bunch of people at Texas City Refinery through another safety violation. BP had rampant history of safety violations that ExxonMobil didn't have. And so that when you go into a court of law, you absolutely say, wait, well, how many people have you killed in the last 10 years? Oh, a lot? Wow, I think you actually have a real problem with processes, not just a one-off thing because of you know, low humidity levels and, you know, the air sucking the water out of the land. It's because you systematically don't know how to handle risk at this company. Well, their, their shares tanked 22% in the middle of last week. They've gone up and down. They rose back up after Picker indicated he wouldn't let pg e go bankrupt, but they've lost a, a, a serious amount of value. So how would pg e move forward? There are a few different avenues, one being bankruptcy protection. PG&E filed for bankruptcy in 2001 after the California energy crisis. Um, The state could issue bonds that would allow, um, that would be paid off by ratepayers and allow PG&E to recover its wildfire damage costs. And then there could be, as Jigger mentioned, a breakup of some kind to separate different units of the company. Any thoughts on which of those is more likely, and if it could be a combination of some of those. I, you know, I think that if they if they go the bond route, my sense is it'll be tied with some sort of mandate to move to microgrids. I just can't imagine that the state of California would say, here's a bunch of money. We'll, we'll make sure it gets paid back by ratepayers, but we trust that you won't keep making the problem worse. I mean, my sense is that they would impose upon pg e a set of solutions that pg e itself can't be trusted to put in place. One thing I'm hoping for is that Congress will now start really working in a bipartisan way on infrastructure and, a, and that a component of that should be resilience. And hopefully they'll look at some of these options for, you know, putting in much more resilient technologies, monitoring systems, and allowing states to get block grants. Um, Maybe utilities, like with the stimulus bill, will be able to co-fund some projects to build microgrids and and other systems. I think there is an opportunity that's going to come up in 2019, and I'm hoping to see some resilience in that. Well, let's unpack that a little bit more. So if California is going to be seeing a million and a half or more acres burned a year, what does a resilient system actually look like in that state? I mean, how could we build out, where can you limit vulnerabilities and how much would distributed infrastructure actually help in this kind of situation? Any thoughts on what that future system could and should look like? Well, look, I think that it, it's it's not an easy thing to answer, right? But I think that the question really becomes what makes people safe, right? And, you know, I think that part of this is getting people some seat at the table where they can actually start to choose their own fortunes, right? A lot of um, what's happened in infrastructure broadly, whether it's the water system or the electricity system or the road system, is a bunch of people from a university saying, I'm smarter than all of you, and here is the the system that we put in place and trust us, we will do a good job for you. And I think a lot of what's move, what we're moving to is counties and mayors and county commissioners and others saying, we actually want to seat at the table and we actually want to decide whether this solution is the right solution for our community or whether it's only, you know, what gets imposed on us by the masters at the top. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, it it's not going to just be things like synchrophasers and monitoring systems for utilities, but also communities deciding whether they want to do community solar or uh, allow much more penetration of solar plus storage, you know, those will be systems that will that could fail quickly and then return quickly back to power. So I, I agree, Jigger. I think it's going to take a lot of communities coming together. And California may need to do a plan to figure out, you know, how do, how do we go about this um, in a way that makes sense for the state? I mean, it is just the devastation is unbelievable. And the good news, bad news is, of course, they're about to get four to six inches of rain that will stop the fires. But then because of all this scorched earth could cause massive mudslides. So, you know, they're just in this horrible circular downward spiral right now caused by these fires. That's right. Uh, And that is climate change for you. Droughts get worse and then the atmosphere holds more moisture and you get these downpours and you create potential flooding and landslides and so forth. Uh, You are witnessing this terrible iterative cycle in real time. And, And then on top of that, you have this insurance crisis and housing crisis in California. You have limited housing. The houses that are built in these areas are now uninsurable or very expensive to insure, which is, you know, a product of how dangerous things are getting in this area. The final point I want to make is just that we should be cautious about how we describe impacts because this is a multi-pronged problem. It has to do with forest management and and controlled burns and how we use controlled burns. It has to do with climate change and droughts and bark beetle infestations uh, and then how we manage uh, you know our forests given increasing droughts. It has to do with where houses are getting built. Communities are moving closer to fire-prone areas, and that's creating a real problem. When you have these fast-moving fires, you see communities devastated. So we have to make sure that we're looking at all those things equally, along with the utilities' role. This is a very, very complicated problem. And we have to take it seriously. We actually have to admit that it's climate change that is occurring and figure out how to mitigate. Well, I think that's I think that's right, Catherine. But I think the part that still bugs me more than most is that These are companies who have publicly traded shareholders, right? There are people who are making deals, making 1% fees on bond issuances and figuring out how to make 20% return on equity and all these other things, right? And my sense is, is that either these organizations should be made into the wards of the government where people are not allowed to make 20% returns and all these other things, right? Or they should basically be able to, you know, handle the risks, that are inherent within the business that they've actually, you know, um, you know, signed up for, right? But I just think this constant cycle of saying these are for-profit companies and then having the state bail them out on a continuous basis just feels wrong to me, and it just it feels like it's not the right way that capitalism should work, where it's like, you know, all the upside profits I take and all the downside risks I socialize with the government. I think you're echoing how a lot of people feel about the situation in California. So more to come. We'll watch the political situation there to see if they do back PG&E or if investors run. Meanwhile, everyone's trying to figure out how to build a more resilient system, and GE is helping. GE has a new lithium-ion energy storage system that's modular and can cut construction time by 50%. It is called Reservoir. It is 
Again, modular, it's flexible, it comes shipped with the battery already inside, and you can pair it with anything, with thermal generation, with your renewable energy generation, you can use it for microgrids. The reservoir system brings decades of field experience and tech innovation into a simplified yet customizable battery solution. So you can pair it with virtually anything you can imagine and make the grid more secure, more reliable, and more resilient. Check out the reservoir system for yourself at ge.com slash energy storage. It is time now for our picks of the top turkeys of 2018. So we gave our heartfelt thanks. Now we're going to talk about the biggest blunders and bloopers of the year and maybe poke a little fun. So Catherine, serve us up a dish of turkey or tofurkey, uh, what's, whatever your favorite alternative is. Uh, what's your top turkey of 2018? Okay, all roads lead to resilience, evidently. So mine is the war on the war on coal, the coal bailout. The war on the war on coal, I love it. That's right, that's right. So back in 2017, in March of 2017, a couple things happened. The Trump administration issued an energy independence executive order that really tried to push forward the fact that we need more independence through U.S.-based resources, especially fossil fuels. That same month and the next day, March 29th, Bob Murray of Murray Coal, First Energy, and their lobbyist met with Department of Energy Secretary Perry and gave him two things. One was an action plan of everything to do to save the coal industry, and the second was a big hug. Those were all filmed. (laughs) And (laughs) what we found through that was that there was an action plan that our administration has been taking quite seriously and ticking off all the things that they wanted to do, checking the boxes on all the things they want to get rid of, mercury and air toxic standards, cross-state air pollution rule, clean power plan, Paris Accord, coal ash pond, the list goes on and on. It was all in a list. So what did DOE do? They hired Allison Silverstein, and said, we're going to write an anti-regulatory report that shows the need for baseload generation. Well, she issued that report in August of 2017, just a couple months after this meeting, a few months after the meeting, and she found that, nope, actually, it's because of flat demand and low gas prices and the fact that coal plants are already economic and have low capacity factors. That's why the coal industry is dying. Nonetheless, Department of Energy issued this notice of proposed rulemaking to support these coal-fired power plants in September of 2017, which of course FERC rejected in early 2018, shut down the docket and said, all right, we'll issue a resilience, we'll start a resilience rulemaking. And Department of Energy has continued to try to use the Defense Production Act, the Federal Power Act sections. They just the other day issued uh, a new program called Coal First to try to build flexible, resilient, small 50 to 350 megawatt coal plants. So they continue to move forward on coal, regardless of the fact that none of this makes any economic sense. And the person who was the lobbyist for Murray and First Energy, who was in that March 2017 meeting, one year later was introduced and confirmed as the deputy administrator of the EPA. And his name is Andrew Wheeler, and he is now going to very likely be running EPA. Mm -hmm. What a charade this was. I mean, for, for me, what makes this such a blunder was how terrible the legal arguments were and how easy they were for legal scholars to pick them apart and how the 
internal experts within the DOE contradicted what this plan represented. And so everybody within DOE who knew anything about how markets worked or what was going on in the electricity sector uh, contradicted everything that this plan represented. So it was just absurd on its face. But Andrew Wheeler, who was that lobbyist, is going to be leading EPA and all of these rollbacks of rules. So they're still getting a lot done, even though DOE, the coal bailout from DOE was a big turkey. EPA has been extremely effective. How's that swamp draining going, Catherine? Yeah, let me just put this in perspective. So during the Obama administration, nobody was allowed to be put into a position in the federal government who had been a registered lobbyist for the previous two years. So you had to be deregistered for two whole years before you could ever even be considered for a position. And I was as a registered lobbyist, but I was running a trade association was not even allowed to meet with the administration, even though I had zero stake. It was my members that may have had a stake in the stimulus bill, but I had no personal stake in it at all. We weren't even allowed to meet with them. And now lobbyists are being immediately put in. As soon as they get in and see the administration, then they're being being put into these slots. It's totally we different. We could make the case that Obama needed a few more lobbyists. His Yes, he went the other direction a little bit too far. But that's just to show the comparison of the way lobbyists have been able to work with the federal government. Jigger, what is your top turkey of 2018? Well, you know, I think after lionizing China for so long, I think China is my top turkey for 2018. Hmm. Why the reversal? You know, know, so there was a great study that came out of EconPol Europe, which is a network of researchers in the European Union. They, um, They did a poll on the tariffs on China and showed that American consumers are only going to pay about 20% of all of the tariff costs. And China is going to eat the other 80% of the tariff costs um, just because they basically have an export-led economy and really need the demand from U.S. Um, uh, from US consumers. And so they've eaten most of the cost to be able to get people to continue to buy their stuff. And you're seeing that in solar panels, where solar panels in the United States have gone back down to the 30 cent per watt range, even though... They've got tariffs on them because the Chinese need U.S. demand to be able to sell out their plants. I think the other place where they're a really big turkey is on electricity integration, right? I think there's been this huge lionization of Chinese tech companies, whether it's Alibaba or others. And when you look at their ability to integrate solar and wind into the grid, China today has about 25% more wind energy capacity um, installed than the U.S. does, but has 25% less wind energy production than the United States um, every year. They're short by 39 terawatt hours. Um, and that's a huge amount of power. Um, and so, you know, I think that that is largely because um, they're, or they just refuse now to ask for help on grid integration and all the other pieces that they need help with. And the U.S. really is better than them at figuring a lot of that that stuff out. So I understand the wind curtailment problem, but I don't know. I don't get what, if the Chinese are sucking up those costs and keeping prices low for everyone else. Why are they a turkey for it? I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's creating self-harm, but it seems like it's good for everyone else. Well, I look, I think that I think that there is a real 
conversation that we all need to have around the global supply chain, right? I mean, we are currently getting a lot of modules from China. If all of those manufacturers are systematically losing money and we're expecting the Chinese government to basically bail them out on a regular basis, I think there's a huge problem with our supply chain. And I do think that we all need to figure out how to help China become a more sustainable economy. I think their ability today, 20% of all their glittering um, high-rise condo buildings are empty, right? They've got entire cities that they've built that are empty without any people in them. They've got maglev trains that are running with no people in them, right? At some point, we've got to complete the education of China on capitalism, right? They can't just be in a place where, um, you know, where they are, you know, sort of try to export to the world and losing money systematically doing it and continue to to thrive, right? And that's important because our entire system of, you know, levelized cost of energy that we're counting on from Lazard comes from, you know, cheap Chinese imports, right? And I think we want to know whether there's actually, um, you know, some instability in the supply chain, which, you know, causes us to worry about our ability to keep those cost reductions going. And it may be that an internal competitive market would really help them. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, well, you've chosen a faceless country, so it's hard to make fun of anyone personally. But I'm going to go back to a single individual who I think is the biggest turkey of 2018. And I I was hoping to come up with something outside of Washington, D.C., but I ultimately had to go to the swamp in D.C., and choose former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt for the biggest turkey of the year. I mean, this guy was doing everything right in the president's eyes. He was unraveling and deregulating fairly efficiently and was one of the few people that Trump praised publicly. And he managed to do everything wrong in such a spectacular fashion to get himself removed from the job when the president loved him so much. So let's just recall the many ethics controversies. There were like a dozen things that he was either being investigated for officially or that just looked really, really bad. And a few of them um, are the private jets and military planes to fly for routine trips that amounted to hundreds of thousands of dollars, using staff to book personal trips for him and his wife to buy household goods and to find his wife a job, uh, renting an apartment from a lobbyist who lobbied his agency, the EPA, and then failed to pay rent or even take out the trash. So I know it's kind of easy to poke fun at Pruitt, but this is a guy who was made for Trump's Washington. And he managed to do so many things wrong that even his administration had to force him out. So he takes top turkey of 2018, in my opinion. And you didn't even mention the used mattress he was dying to get from the Trump hotel. Right. Well, remind me of that one again. Yeah, he was trying to get a used mattress from the hotel. I don't know why anybody would ever... I mean, I have a hard time sleeping on a regular mattress at a hotel, much less wanting to purchase that mattress. <laughs> But like the the flagrancy with which he did his job was astounding. Um, and so like I think he did a great job for what he was hired to do, and that is to pick apart the agency. And so that he he squandered his opportunity. he He had an opportunity to do what he's been trying to do his entire career. And he couldn't help himself. And he abused taxpayer funds, and he did a lot of idiotic things that forced even the Trump administration to kick him out. Well, the spotlight is on Secretary Zinke and Perry now, too. So they may have some similar issues, if not quite as flagrant. Some splaining to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's let's round out the show. 
pack our bags, get ready to head out on a Thanksgiving vacation. Before we do, we'll give you a free electron to charge up that EV or maybe your electric oven to put your to- turkey or tofurkey into. So, Jigger, what is your free electron this week? Well, you know, as as we are wont to do, sometimes there are pieces of legislation that pass that we uh, uh, that falls through the cracks. So the Republicans and Democrats actually came together to pass America's Water Infrastructure Act into law, um, and then also reauthorize the Water Resources Development Act. I think for most people, I don't know that they know that you know while we have a fractured electric system with over 2,500 owners of electricity companies, uh, monopoly utilities. There's 53,000 community drinking water systems. Every small little town and, and uh, subplot seems to own their own water district. Um, and, and even with that, I mean, their infrastructure is just woefully inadequate. You know, folks are using systems that are 100 years old. You know, some of them um, are out of compliance with EPA, et cetera. And so there's a big pile of money that was offered to be able to, you know, upgrade a lot of those systems. And so, you know, kudos to the Congress on that. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so really fun blog and ACEEE, which was about Black Friday shopping. So as you all are recovering from your turkey or tofurkey comas, um, ACEEE writes that we should be shopping for energy efficient electronics and appliances and light bulbs. I thought that was a great blog and very good for the season. And I also just wanted to mention that my firm, 38 North Solutions, is hiring and taking on new clients. So we love working with really interesting people doing entrepreneurial things. And we, in the spirit of the holiday, would love to hear from you. So drop me a note. So I wanted to highlight an important piece of news here in Boston. If you'll remember back to our live show, I you know, kind of crapped all over Boston for its poor performance, poor energy efficiency performance with new buildings. Um, many of and many of the buildings being constructed here in Boston have very low energy efficiency scores. Um, Boston has been developing a climate plan for a long time. One piece of that plan was to build a very large wall to protect us from rising sea levels, and that wall was going to cost over ten billion dollars and probably take a few decades to complete. So the city of Boston revisited that plan and they thought about how to create a less expensive, more accessible, and more equitable option. And what they did was announce, under Marty Walsh, the Boston mayor, announce a new plan to create this huge system of waterfront parks to act as a buffer for floods. And the parks are actually meant to be flooded. And they're you know meant to tolerate very high sea levels over the coming decades. And then on top of that, in conjunction with some of the parks, they're building um, housing, more resilient housing that can withstand rising sea levels. And a lot of that will be low-income housing. So they're trying to do it in a way that makes housing more accessible, that makes the parks able to withstand rising sea levels and, you know, doesn't cost tens of billions of dollars to construct. And I just wanted to give the city of Boston a shout out for revising that plan. That's cool. That's a great story. Yeah, it really is. Well, that does it for the show, folks. If you want to express your gratitude, go over to Apple Podcasts right now 
and rate and review us, then pass the show on to someone who you think would like it. We are eternally grateful for your support. Reach out to us on Twitter if you've got questions, comments, or feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Catherine, happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. You too. Jigger, you as well. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are The Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media. Thank you.